the ability to ideate on a game, if we're going to use Dota as the example, Dota to League, Valorant is another example. These are games that people really truly thought of, considered, and sort of messed around with in the realm of a, an original game. That's especially true in, in Dota and Warcraft 3, right? So I think that's totally viable now as a solution where people can do, right, different UGC type things and they can port them pretty quickly into an experience. And that's especially true on other platforms that enable it feels like the proliferation of democratized access to tools is going to have a big effect on smaller studios' ability to compete. Hey everyone, welcome to the second episode of All Chat, a new podcast where we're aiming to deliver an unfiltered view behind the scenes of some of the most interesting and current topics within the gaming industry, startups more broadly, and venture capital. Joining us once again on this episode, we have Stephen Lim, the founder of Raidbase and recently the creator and executive producer behind Valorant at Riot Games. We're also joined by another Riot alum. Jordan Mazur, who's currently head of talent for Injuries and Far Wixes Games. Finally, there's Brian and myself, the co-founders of Patron, an early stage venture firm with strong focus on gaming and super startups. Prior to founding Patron, we helped to scale Riot from zero to one, joining the company before League of Legends launched and helping build out publishing, esports, business, and corporate development as the company developed into one of the most valuable gaming companies in the world. Now let's dive into our discussion about the people side of the games industry. Well, why don't we start off with the layoffs in the industry? Um, you know, I think that's obviously one thing that's top of mind for everybody that's, you know, working in game development right now. There's a lot of companies cutting people and, you know, it's obviously really painful, but yeah, like what's your guys' perspective as it relates to like how that impacts the overall, you know, job market? Um, how should game developers be thinking about what's happening? I, I guess personally, like I've seen this kind of play out back in 2009 when I started working in games. This is back in, you know, the great great financial um, crisis and there's, yeah, there's a lot of jobs that just got cut and it was, it was super painful, but I think on the flip side, it feels like the industry's grown a lot too. So I think you kind of have to take a step back and think about like the overall pie. It's like certainly expanded a lot from what it used to be. Love to get your guys' take as it relates to what's happened and you know, where this is all going. Yeah. I can at least just start with just like numbers. There's like some very easy numbers on this to your point, Brian, since 2010, from 2010 to 2019, the market went from about 125,000 jobs here in the U.S. market to 230,000 jobs. So huge increase in the total volume. And then over the next ensuing three years throughout COVID, right, the, all these companies grew to a degree that was, I think, untenable, which is now what we're seeing play out because the continued demand for the games that were being published at the time, or it's not what it was then. And just some numbers in those three years, right? EA, 31% growth, Take-Two, 34% growth, Roblox, 101% growth, Activision, 37%, Riot, 47% over those three years. In the last year, per that Axios article that came out, I think it was yesterday, there were 6,000 jobs so far that were affected by layoffs, which is effectively 2.5% of the, the global market, sorry, US market. So at least to me, while it's, um, it's terrible, it's unfortunate, so many people are losing their jobs, their families are affected. I think it is very reasonable sort of pullback and that it doesn't really signal this sort of like landslide that's about to come. I, I don't see it sort of going in that direction. It just feels like a leveling off of growth that will continue once, right, the the demand is met again and there's a need to continue growing those organizations. So that's that's my simple view. 
It's certainly high contrast from a year ago or semi recently. So the felt difference is pretty dramatic. Um, but to all of your points, um, in the grand scheme of things, um, I guess in general, we should be thankful that the, there's such a growth period in the whole space that there's as many jobs as there are, you know, gaming roles and jobs were just not prevalent 20 years ago. You'd have to really scrounge really deeply, go to pretty ridiculous extents to be able to get into the industry today between tooling, um, the breadth of opportunities at um, startups, which brain drained and like not brain drained, but like, basically created a vacuum um, in a lot of the bigger companies, which cascaded to more opportunities there. It's in one way of looking at it better than it's been over the long course of time. But obviously, any loss of jobs is like regrettable. Um, where my brain kind of goes to as a initial reaction to what's going on um, recently is how do we not get this to happen uh, again later? And um, and when I when I say this, maybe let's be specific. Um, layoffs at all, and this like maybe felt dramatic difference between highs and lows. Um, I love working on games with dramatic highs and lows, but real life should be like pretty chill and like stable in my opinion. Um, and then obviously the world is as hard enough as it is. So, um, so when I think about those two things, I do think that when times are good, there was a gross overinflation of everything. Um, startups that shouldn't have been started, um, projects that spun up that shouldn't have been each project like expanding way beyond where its stage was ready for. And so when the um, the effects of not being ready to be at those sizes uh, was quickly unsustainable and then compounded, and this is where we really feel this dramatic difference, compounded with the pullback in the general market, those two things, man, are like a two hit combo that um, that lead to some of the more drastic um, feeling and drastic, I guess, as objectively as you can look at it, um, actions with entire studios closing. Um, th there's kind of like this threshold of breaking, there has to be thresholds of breaking points where, you know, you dip below that breaking point. It's like either going to just keep cascading down. And it's like irrecoverable or it's just like, it's broken and it's not sustainable. Um, of course, like we all want to see growth. We want, um, to see growth at large for the industry. We want to see growth individually for ourselves and um and all the more do i love and encourage like people um getting paid more in our industry and everything but i think i stopped short personally where um it's like if it's past sustain past sustainable i think um you have to be really careful about asking for more personally or at large because if it can't i want long-term growth for this industry. So the, the, the short term highs and lows is something I hope we can mitigate more and be more chill about in general, so that we can enjoy long term growth at large. Um, I think those two things are associated. Um, I don't think we get to long term growth by taking all opportunity in the short term. Um, I think we can literally see like, tech algorithms with the same kind of principle, like the, the greedy algorithm basically doesn't isn't necessarily the fastest um, or, or, or best or most effective way of getting to certain goals and outcomes, which we all share. 
Um, so of course there's like range and of course this is not like an absolute um, uh, rule or anything like that. But on average, I think having a more steady hand in the, in the good times and in the hard times um, will hopefully reduce the band of difference of like the felt effects. Otherwise, if times are good and we crazy over, we crazy spend, then I think we're seeing the effects now where when, when times are harder, you feel you, it may be 2.5% at large, you know, um, of pullback, but entire studios are closing, which is very dramatic for those people. Um, and the industry's <clears throat> small enough that we all know first, like, uh, first order, like people who are dramatically affected by that and you want to help. And, and most studios are now feeling like they're lucky enough to not have to lay off right now, let alone be able to hire. So you're not able to help even if you wanted to, if you stay at these extremes. Um, so it is tough, even if it's on paper, only 2.5%. We all know people who were directly affected by layoffs. We want to help. And there are many cases where we want to help when we are very limited in how we can help. Um, and uh, and even if studios aren't laying off, we're also seeing a lot of studios not able to hire, which is doesn't help the the, the, the influx of, of of talent that's floating around. Um, for anyone who is, oh, sorry, go ahead. I can keep on. No, I was going to say, what, what do you think is causing like some of this short-term pain? Right, I think the obvious thing is like, yeah, like we everyone was overspending in 2020, 2021. It just felt like. Um, just the industry was going to grow even faster. And, and by the way, like they're going to step back. They, it's not like the game industry industry is shrinking this year, right? From like an overall like growth dollars perspective, like it still continues to grow. Maybe not at the trajectory that people thought. But I, I guess going deeper into what you're saying, Slim, like do you think it's just people were too aggressive around green lighting projects that should have not gone greenlit? Is it just people wanted to like throw more bodies at the problem? Like, yeah, just like. What do you think specifically um, people, especially like founders, like like how should they be thinking about it? And Jordan, you might have a perspective too, obviously, because you probably see more overall industry data, but I, I guess like going out. deeper, like what do you think is like some of the lessons that um, we can think about? There's a couple things that builders. fly through my head right now that may be incomplete, but maybe we can like beat up together is um, there's a there was a general notion or is a general notion that growth equals progress and i do not agree with that at all i can see why people agree with that i don't think it's invalid um there are many cases where growth is a reflection of progress and but i think the inverse is not necessarily true growth does not equal progress necessarily and there was a lot of encouragement um not necessarily by investors, but also by investors, um, but also just by peers or like compare, you know, people are competitive and you look at each other's like progress and you're like, oh, you guys are only like 20 people, you guys are only 60 people. And it's like a measure of like, oh, we're doing stuff and we're, we're making our game, which is exciting and, 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 and could be a really good indicator. But, you know, as we're seeing a lot of games accelerate towards um, their launches, um, they because many of them because they were imminently about to um run out of uh, runway um their games were ob obviously not ready obvious in the sense that like the market reflected that not like my judgment um that that i think could have been 
um, mitigated, I don't know what preventable, but mitigated along the way by not artificially pumping. Um, well, I don't think anyone intends to um, or necessarily is like pumping for artificial reasons. But somewhere along the way, there must have been some kind of misassessment of like, where we are and are we ready for this scale or this size or these steps or this, are we really at this phase of development? And there must be some disconnect there because once some market gave feedback, it reflected that it was not ready. Um, I think. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I think it goes partly to there, there aren't clear milestones for when you should scale your team. And I think part like everyone, like investors, the founders, like team, team members, like is, is uh, involved in all of this is that, and I think one challenge from the last, uh, from 2021, 2022, when capital was much more readily available is that a lot of companies were like private companies were overfunded. A lot of public companies were significantly overvalued. And so there was a sense that you need to like deploy some of that capital, which was available in order to like scale teams faster, to build faster, to ship faster. And I think to your point, Slim, like just because you have money doesn't necessarily mean that you're, it's the right point in time to like step on the gas. And so just curious, I guess, from both of your standpoint, like what, what are things that you guys think about in terms of like, when does it make sense to start like leaning in and scaling different teams and uh, especially within kind of the game development framework? I have strong I opinions like, on this as, as you yeah, do for I, you're going to go. Slim. Wait, go ahead. First. You first, Slim. It's okay. No, 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 no. no go, 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 go. All right. I'll share. I'll just share. I want to share two important things that I think need to be disentangled just briefly. One is that um, there, there are always going to be some number of small companies that are going from hit to hit. And when they miss, they will potentially die. Yeah. Right. It's just part of the regular life cycle of especially smaller businesses who don't have the same degree of capital or right track record or any number of things to sustain themselves after the fact that would have happened this year and last year and the year yep. before and et cetera. So there's in that 6,000 number, there's some that are just part of the regular course of, of life for many of these companies. For a bunch of the larger companies for, right, I guess a riot, an EA, a Unity, a act, whatever, it feels to me that the problems that they had are very different as you were just saying Jason than the problems that right that some of those smaller startups have because they were either predicting a level of you know interest or yeah. um, demand for their games or to your point they they felt a need to invest at that moment so i just i want to make sure that when people think about the broad ecosystem they're not forgetting that sure. this is just part of the yeah. life of companies of yeah yeah the I, I'm guessing that Slim will very much say this, but I, I just want to say like the first part is like, do you actually have a game or a concept, an idea that is fun and that is worth putting a significant amount of right resources against? I feel like for a lot of the companies that overinvest, they want to get incredible talent, giant leadership teams, a series of VPs or directors, many of whom aren't necessarily, you know, folks who can actually contribute right away to a title or who can help prototype or who can help move towards something that is interesting. And when that's the case, they get put into a very difficult spot because many of them cannot actually do the work. They might not know where they're going in the first place. And then they start, you know, burning considerable amount of resources because game talent is not cheap, even in the startup ecosystem. So I just, I think the first step is at least having a pretty strong idea about what you're trying to build before you're resourcing for 
polish, for right completion, for a number of things that obviously are critical to find before you try and quote unquote scale the organization. I very much uh, agree with all that. And um, I, I guess the main thing I want to convey is my base, um, I guess, mode of operation of like crawl, walk, run. So in applied here on this topic, I think what we want to see is some amount of the engagement that we want to eventually see. So if you have a very rough gray box version of your game, it may not sustain like, you know, like a large audience yet, but you want to see some amount of the behaviors that you hope to see later as you layer on and stack upon this foundation. So somebody somewhere should be not stopping playing your game. If that's the outcome that you want to see at, at, at some point early on. And there's this, uh, what, what I, what is very difficult about this for every kind of game and team is um, a chicken and a chicken and egg feeling that when you build it, they will come kind of thing. So like, if you don't see that engagement yet, it's tempting to say, oh, but, but when we do this and this, then they'll come. So let's just like put more gas on that. And that is true for anyone. Despite me tr uh, pr uh, <laughs> preaching this step, we do have to do like a critical mass for like a first step um, for the game loop to make sense for our game. Our game happens to be really complicated. So our timeline is more protracted because of that. And others, you might be able to test that um, literally in the first week um, and with a lot less investment in art and a bunch of things. I mean, again, I love that we have examples like Battlebit, a number of other games. I mean, there's a number of um, games on the Roblox platform that without um, fancy graphics, they have such an engaging core loop um, that that people come and, and, and play. Um, that's not always available. Some experiences are about that high fidelity thing. If you're making, you know, um, like you're going to expect that out of studios like Sony Santa Monica and Naughty Dog and Dice and stuff like that. Like they just don't get a pass for something like that. Um, or at least they haven't uh, uh, in general in the past. And so, um, and so everyone's in a different situation with varying amounts of like weight on these things that they have to consider for their own soup. And so it's really hard to tell how much how, do we go too far on any one of these steps? Like, are we putting too much faith in this thing? Oops, we hired too much. Oops, we weren't actually ready. That is all natural to varying degrees. Um, and we all have to struggle with that. Now, something that I think paired with this concept is I, you know, we're all eager to get that validation, but I think there's different ways of approaching it. So a common investor uh, statement that is encouraged is like, let, let's like go to market faster, let's test it, iterate. I think that is absolutely like a generally a good thing to encourage, but that market doesn't have to be the wild public Twitter space or Steam charted thing. Because if you go to the, the all the way to that, you I think you spend a lot of trust currency. Um, to uh, and that's like a first impression you cannot take back. We try to do the same steps internally as much as we can. So just uh, using Valorant just as an example, um, a lot what a lot of people see and 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 maybe rightfully criticize is like there's nothing, there's nothing, nothing. You guys have been building this for seven years, and all of a sudden you come out and it's like if it seems like a hail mary. But what we actually know internally, the team is we were testing with tastemakers that we could reach in the field from the first year. And we kept that up throughout the whole thing, which is 
an easy thing to say and a very difficult thing to pull off because most game teams don't even have a build that they can reliably deploy and play test every week, let alone every day as we did. That could count on two hands the number of days that we could not play test on a on demand in the entirety of that time, which was absolutely not free and something to credit like so many people on, including our engineering team and and Mike Evans and stuff. Like it was like a very high priority that supported the, the design team, that supported our ability to connect to that taste to those tastemakers, even if it was just one person, even if it was just five people, even if it was just 10 people, like even at those scales, it was super not free to do that. And then Slim, you can- how possible is that for a startup? You were obviously heavily capitalized and backed by the will and might of Riot. So I'm curious, you know, now are you able to do that for, you know- Everything has trade-offs um, and nothing is free. I would say we were doing this when we were literally five people in a room. So I think nearly any startup can do that, but at what cost? What are you trading off to do that? For us to keep that true, um, there was added friction to change rate. There was um, more of our time and effort spent on QAing ourselves rather than picking up another dedicated QA hire or time spent to implement a new feature. So it's this is constant, no right answer trade-off. Um, and and then let's say you make that sacrifice and you are able to play test on a whim or at least every week. Do you get the mileage out of that that you hope to? Because just doing the play test alone, I think I I I think play tests are its own art form to get value out of. You have to ask learn to ask the right questions that are relevant to your team. You have to ask questions that are then leading to actionable things following, versus what I hear very commonly is like we play test, oh, we knew all this already. Then okay. Why did you run the playtest? Why didn't you already spend that time fixing it instead? So then it's like, it's again, it's a little muddy. So I think a lot of people go through the motions of playtesting and these right actions, but don't actually get the value that they presume that they do. Um, and so these things I think have to work in concert and there is, it is really muddy. There's not an exact right answer, particularly in that there's vast differences between each game and their complexities and unknowns and newness that they're dealing with. Um, but it has to be done, I think, very consciously to get and deliberately to get the value out um, to help to mitigate, you know, like by the time you get all the way to the end, you're like, we're releasing and it's like the game dies in a month. Like that should not ever be a surprise in my opinion. You should have seen that coming way before. I don't know, maybe you knew that, but you just held married and hoped because maybe you ran out of choices. But then I think, again, that behooves all of us who are influencers or leaders within our teams and our, and our products and our teams to be as responsible as we can to mitigate that along the way as possible. Um, and again, even on these actions, even if they're a good idea, are not free. Like to resist the temptation to just hire. And again, we've been in a very fortunate position where our investors have been very um, empathetic, patient. Um, we haven't had to do much resistance, but in most cases, in most setups, you do have to resist that. And even if it wasn't for investor pressure, even investors, um, I, by the way, there's like extremes here aren't helpful either. Like some investors would be like, oh, so we are like, told, we don't know how to make games. We're totally hands off. Like you can ask questions like, what did you do in this past month? What did you do in like the past few months? Like you can, it's okay to ask that. Like I would even encourage it. Like just being, all of us being ready to answer that is I think a responsibility as devs to be able to, re to be ready to answer that for players. I think we, we need to be able to, to have that for new hires, for our own team. I think we need to be ready to like 
do that as part of our responsibility set. So I think it's okay for investors to ask questions like that um, to just, hey, like, hey, guys, like, <laughs> what are you doing over there? And we should be able to be like, yeah, okay, we're doing this and this for these reasons. And then it's, it's you know, um, everyone can decide whether or not that's like reasonable or whatever level there. But um, but I think it's okay to do that. And then the other extreme of like, you know, like the the old school, and which still happens, by the way, the, the milestone gate thing. Um, where that committee. Yeah, yeah that where like to get this next tranche, you do do this, like make two more characters and three more levels, like has its own drastic effects of forcing the team to be very short-sighted. If you are always only going from milestone to milestone, you're very disincentivized to do invest anything into your game product that takes more than those milestones. Um, because you're like, well, we live or die. It's so it's so like um, it's so like a, it feels like a crisis where everything you want to pour into like surviving that next milestone check. And then the real thing that everyone wants is this thing landing or not. You weren't able to invest in some things that took many milestones to do. And so either extreme is like not necessarily good or successful. Um, and of course you can like find examples at those extremes, but like, I think it's more gambling when you push it to the extremes. Um, so, so anyway, um, <laughs> I veered off quite yeah. a bit here, but like crawl, walk, run is like, I think a general, general goal here that I think can mitigate some of these more extreme examples that we're seeing lately. I think on the flip side for startups, um, especially for folks building games, I could also see the other part of the argument where like, it's like Jordan said, right? You're undercapitalized. You already don't have a lot of resources. And when you go to market, like if you're going to have to go up against like these AAA games or even, even like indie games that you describe where they just already have like a lot of traction and community, um, it is hard. And I think that also goes to the question of like, you know, defensibility, like that, that I think is probably one of the toughest things if you're building a studio is like, you know, the, the world of like riot spending years innovating on Dota into creating league of legends, like that, that world is no longer, no longer possible. It feels like based on, how quickly like some of the incumbents and like these bigger studios move. So um, yeah, I guess like what's your guys' take? Like how do, how do founders operate in that world where your ability to like really have innovation and like use that almost as a moat and then like build a team right off of that. That's a lot harder than, than what it used to be. Right. I think it's interesting. Of- yeah. I think it's interesting to assume that, uh, the large companies are faster. They have, of course, more resources and more people. But with more people, typically comes Complexity. more bureaucracy, more arguing, more egos, more IP counsel, more any number of prohibitive factors towards forward movement, number one, especially if it's like the fifth, sixth, seventh product, because now there's all these different norms and whatever that you need. There's to another one where um, a big company... Uh, poo-poo's a lot of ideas because in general their environments are like people it's hard to be right because people don't want to stick their neck outs and it's easy to like throw rocks at ideas or like oh this is some like kid game this is some small thing this is like not even number 10 on steam like they'll just hear you hear that all day long at a big company yeah so there's there's all of those challenges now the gap between the startup and the larger company is is certainly their ability, at least you would think, to quickly make the technologies, the art, whatever whatever it is. And at least, this is I know we're going to talk about AI at some point, but I feel like that is a gap that maybe can, to some degree, or a gulf that can, to some degree, be bridged 
by development teams today through the application and use of other resources, whether it's quicker concepting or right, an ability to code more quickly because of Copilot. Now, of course, both sides are gonna have this technology, but my belief is that the technology itself won't help the pace or um, delivery of the larger companies as much as it will the smaller ones, because they're still gonna be stuck in the mire of all the problems of trying to agree on what they can and should make. Whereas a smaller company will be able to very quickly put those in place and, and to leverage them because they're not stymied by the first part of that equation. So I, I don't think necessarily that the bigger companies always have that advantage yeah. as it's described. And I also really believe that the ability to ideate on a game, if we're gonna use Dota as the example, Dota to League, that effectively, you know, Valorant is another example. These are games that people really truly thought of, considered and sort of messed around with in the sort of realm of a, a, an original game. That's especially true in, in Dota and Warcraft 3, right? So I think that's totally viable now as a solution where people can do, right, different UGC type things and they can port them pretty quickly into an experience. And that's especially true on other platforms that enable it. So I don't know. I, it feels like the proliferation of democratized access to tools is going to have a big effect on smaller studios ability yeah. to i think you said like roblox and uefn being like places where you can fast prototype a lot of these experiences at scale where you already have like hundreds of millions of users but i think brian's point was more that to go from dota into demigod and heroes of new earth and then league like that actually took like many years whereas to go from like auto chess to tft was like a couple months, months. And Tencent, I think that's yeah. one thing where it's like, well, if if uh, Riot, Tencent, Supercell, Epic, whoever sees that there is some kind of game that's tangential to something they've already built, their ability to like spin on that, spin a team up and actually create something that is like very high quality is going to be much faster than any, regardless of how much venture capital you raise, like will be much faster than any startup. But then that goes to, I think an earlier point was around, well, it also matters a lot. Like what space are you building in? Are you building in a space? Are you trying to compete for talent against like incumbents and developers that have much better talent and also are actively building in those areas. And I think those are going to be the areas that are going to be trickier for like upstart studios to really be able to have traction. Yeah. I think you yeah, guys, I, I think are, that's the point you guys made where um, we like ideas that are not like incremental, but it's like, you know, startups that are like creating a new market, right? Maybe Roblox is one example, like that genre of game didn't like really exist. Like you can argue there was like UGC and all of that stuff, but how a lot of the young kids play Roblox is very different. And I think a lot of traditional game developers looked at that and like, to your point, Slim just felt like this was more of like a toy or like a distraction. So, um, I think that's probably like the nuance that's important is like, I think for startups, you do have to be, you probably need to be building something or like doing, doing something that is fundamentally uh, you know, it's different than a lot of these bigger studios are going to go and do what, what, what are we going to do in their own time? Right. I think all of your observations are, are, are really, um, on point. And, uh, um, with, uh, certainly I think certain game spaces or genres are more vulnerable to the fast, hard follow fast, hard, big follow, um, thing, especially where like there's, a formula that um is easier to is more easier it's easier to understand and easier to mimic um, i think there is more defensibility in um 
games that have appealed as a matter of uh, taste, which build a certain moat of brand where you're like, you don't want the knockoff version in some cases where there's awareness or appreciation for that brand. There's, there's a little bit of moat there. There's some systemic design moat where minor, seemingly minor tunings um, that you think you're duplicating lead to very, very different player outcomes and decisions that don't, that do not, that therefore lead to a very different experience, even if the feature set looks really similar. Um, I think there's a lot of like, um, you know, competitive games that are, that have like a systemic mode as a result. Um, and uh, games that are, uh, let's just say RPG games, um, anything like an RPG with like stats and stuff like that, like very minor tunings can have a very dramatic, um, course of action or decisions basically it's very different PUBG games. versus fortnite right oh PUBG, fortnite h1z1 like yeah. how different are they on the back of the box bullet points like they're 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 pretty similar uh, you know fortnite obviously a look, uh, f looks more different because of the building um but look at the drama how dramatic the difference was between h1z1 and PUBG. they're both on the surface pretty janky like i don't think PUBG won on a on a polish thing um but as an example, I'm like recalling back six, seven years ago, forgive me for this to be a little off, but like um, one example is H1Z1 from what I recall, maybe this was only for a time, what, it, gave you, it didn't apply any damage when you jump out of a car. So some behaviors that you see is like people will drive in a semicircle around that they'll identify, a drive around looking for a target. And when they see a target, they'll drive, drive a semicircle and drop people off, like in, basically in a, in a semicircle and surround and, and get like a tactical advantage. So whoever they surrounded can't like shoot everyone and so they they would do this um but pubg applied severe damage uh, at, at like different uh, velocities and that behavior didn't happen and so you got a lot more of a fair fight between different teams now who with some who's wearing some suit that would identify that as a potential reason for the difference between h1z1 or pubg right like but they're just like, I don't get it. Like we, you know, we, we did all the things and we made it shinier and like no one showed up. Like people are doing, are experiencing that right now for the innumerable BR copycast, extraction copycast. Like they don't appreciate these nuances that have dramatic player differences or player behavior differences uh, in, in there. And that part is like a big fat, good luck. Try to copy that. Like, you know, like you, you know, that's like one example, but there will literally be hundreds per game. Um, that took many years to 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 um, to uh, to to come to, uh, not just each individual decision, but how they worked in concert with the other, which is essentially complexity mode. Um, and so, so uh, it's not to say it couldn't be done, but they would have to be as diligent as the original team <laughs> to do it. So they basically would have done the work. You know, it's like basically not exactly copyable. Like you could aim to mimic, you can aim to copy. But you have to reparse, like, why did they reach the conclusion? Why does this work? Otherwise, you can't repeat it for even if you can copy a moment in time of a game. How do you keep that going for the ongoing engagement that we all hope for and want in the next month, the next month? Like the same, you could have mimicked a certain like moment in time. But if you don't have the calculus or the team that's doing the calculus to keep that going, then the reliability of that update is like really shaky. So I think with all that said, for however many teams that there are ready to on a drop of a hat, copy a game, how many actually succeeded, um, at least to the large extent. I mean, there might be a lot, but, you know, at the moment I can name King of Glory. Um, there's, you know, there's probably like five or 10 we can name off the bat right now, but, you know, for however many that there are, there's probably like 50 teams of like our 300, like ready to roll tomorrow from 
anywhere that that are able to do that, and they don't. That they they can't, or they try to. Like how many character based vertical battle royale shooters have there come and gone that we can't even name? Like they're just they put all that work. There's probably 800 people on each of those projects coming from a lot of the big name studios, and they're dead in like two weeks. Like. Because you couldn't copy all those like tunings, like yeah. you know, I think that's why. But and I'm seeing it from a very game centric lens, so yeah. It feels like the scalability answer for Slim, like when you scale your team, yeah. is when you have clarity of the concept of what you want to make. You have people who are extremely passionate. You can define who you need to be able to really create that experience because you know that you're going to go in a certain direction and they fit the sort of model. So you know what you're going to hire for to accomplish it, both in terms of like the genre, interest, fitness, et cetera. If you think it's critical as slim is to sort of the success of the game, plus then whatever skills, because that has a big effect on the specific skills, the specific right visual styles, the specific whatever it is that's required. So if we talk about like Valorant, as an example, that's right. The technical needs for Valorant were very specific. And that had a bunch of engineering effects, for example, in terms of who had to be hired versus if you're making a game that is right a CCG, there's a very different set of potential needs. And as a result, it defines the team and the team comp very differently. So at least if I'm like listening to Slim and thinking about the original questions, like what is it that I actually need to wait for until I decide that I want to hire and build my team out? It's I think it's very much product vision that enables you to to be able to effectively produce right the substrate, the hiring outcomes, and to avoid the pain of what happens when you hire half for one product, mm -hmm. and then you learn that you need to switch, and yeah, you yeah. try to either form fit your resources yeah. into a new one, or you need to do something really painful and right potentially lay people off, and the price of that is monumental not only to your current team but to your future hiring ability your brand especially for startup yeah, yeah. This, the earlier it is and and the yeah the more it you have nothing else have. Yeah. yeah you have nothing else for your brand to be judged on but these actions and so right off the bat you're like off on the wrong foot and what is already hard becomes even harder like when we have when i've had conversations around this topic i get a lot of like nodding heads i'm like oh yeah cool like that's like obvious like we should do that and yet i think the vast majority of the startups i've talked to so far have done hiring, in my opinion, out of order, where they're like off to the races and making stuff, and they're like, "We're still looking for a like game director," and you're like, "Whenever that happens, you're gonna have to like recommit to whatever that guy does, or they don't. They bend to you, and whatever momentum you already had, and working within your constraints. I'd say either of these couldn't work, but it." Um, well Again, like it's kind of like adds to like like that false progress thing. It's yeah, like, well, I, like five people. I, I guess to that point, like, what, I know it's not going to be like one to one, one size fits all. But like, what is a good order? Like, if you're a founder trying to build a game studio, like, what are the critical, important, foundational leadership pieces that need to be in place before you start to really build out? Because I think that's a challenge. Like some of these game studios, they raise their first round of funding might be pretty significant, and so to that point, like, you want to demonstrate that you're making progress. But making progress and just hiring people isn't necessarily like if it's out of order, like you say, that could have like downstream negative consequences. Yeah. I hate that. I worry that what I'm about to say will read as spicy, but I feel like it should be the most non-spicy thing. <laughs> but don't even think about starting a project. Don't even think about putting your first check in if there is no designer for a game. Like, what are you doing? It's like the whole thing lives or dies. Okay, let's be more, be more specific. You're making a game that you hope 
has a long-term engagement pattern, which is most of the ones being funded by VCs that are like aiming to be game services or highly social or anything like that. Like you basically need system designers. There are not that many system designers in the world, period. And if you, you can look for where they are based on the games that have lasted a long time. So there was a time period where I would have said that Riot had the majority of them because Riot was one of the only ones even practicing a game service. So not to say other people weren't capable, but they didn't have the practice. They didn't have the reps. Today, that's a very different scenario. There's many, many games that have lasted many, many years and are on the upswing. So there are a lot more viable system designers out there. Um, but even you know, in the pool that I could see, there were a lot of system designers that were good in um, very critical ways, but had various other challenges. And then you have to consider like team makeup, um, how much do you want to build a team around this person, which is like a hard commit. If that person tilts one day, whether they leave the company or they like um, they stop being as viable, like you are kind of hard committed and then you have to deal with that. So that's all what makes it really difficult and muddy as you proceed. But in general, you can't really like half commit. So, you know, I think there's a series of like commitments and miracles that you have to pull off, which is maybe why we see so few like games that actually persist. It's like, it, that's why it's also difficult, I guess, to state the obvious. Um, but if you proceed, when I say, when I say start with a designer, by the way, um, I'm not necessarily, yeah, I'm not necessarily saying start with someone with a, with a game designer title. Um, that you're more, I think it's more important to look for the qualities you can have. There are many games where someone was not a practicing, um, sorry, was, uh, was known as some other discipline. Like they were an engineer or an artist, um, maybe they were practicing these things or maybe they practiced on the job but they were focused on that systems design problems which is problem solving um getting a bunch of competing outcomes to be aligned and work together versus like having a bunch of things that sound good in a vacuum but then have a crazy challenge as like working together i, I like using food analogies but like you know we could really like Brian could really love strawberries. When we're talking about strawberries, we're all talking about Harry's Berry. It was like so freaking good. And then like another day, we're talking with Jason about um, some Italian meal we eat and just some like tomatoes from the west slopes of Mount Vesuvius that we're all really into. Oh my God, it's so good. And then like you try to get it together and you're like strawberries and tomatoes like don't go together. And they're like, like now Jordan is sit poor Jordan is sitting there trying to like get these two things resolved. And like that's like ad nauseum five times a day in game dev. Um, so, uh, you know, some of this you can project and much of it you can't, but I see too little emphasis on this in general. Um, everyone just presumes like, oh, we'll figure it out later. Clearly, that's not true for the vast majority of games that aren't working out. Um, and when I say that, I'm not picking on the startups. Like if you look at Steam with its, however, how many Steam games go on, how many games go on to Steam Workshop in a year? 3,000? Something like that. It's at least 3,000. This is like a lot of games. How many of them can we name in a year that bubbled up in conversation on Discord or wherever else? Like 10, 15? So that's how little it's happening with like net outcome, right? And that's only on Steam, let alone all these other startups. So if there's only like, I'm going to take a guess here. You guys might know the actual number, but like how many gaming startups were there in the last three years? Like 100, 150, 200? Think like about VC the back. Yeah. Okay. VC back. Like, so think about 
hopefully we all presume proceeding and presuming as if the the proportion or the rate will be any better among the startups we we don't know yet um we hope it is because of these studios tend to be more experienced and everything um but again even a lot of these experienced studios are experienced in creating games not experienced in creating systems uh to last which is maybe one of the qualities to look for who is going to tackle these problem sets and do you have practice do we have confidence that you're able to work on that maybe not even just today but you're even conscious of it you're like driving toward it if you hear like oh well like basically fix it in post we'll fix it in post like <laughs> the moment will say it that way but they'll hear things like um oh look at our awesome art team and it's gonna like look really beautiful we're gonna be really appealing there like how many games can we name that look amazing that we don't care about literally weeks later um i, I don't want to pick on anyone right now but there's so many there's so many of those right um and uh and that doesn't mean don't have an art team it just means that like that's that crutch is working less and less yeah. these days people information is traveling faster player sentiment is spreading faster than it ever has people are declaring dramatically like oh good game dead game like all that much faster so and and players don't know and maybe shouldn't know like what went into it so we could say oh we worked on this for seven years and um we've been thinking about this all this stuff like they kind of don't care if if for all that it's almost even worse like you thought about it all that and this is what it is today <laughs> like what you know that would be pretty sad um and that can so easily happen so anyway <clears throat> i think like some of the order of operations here is you need to have confidence if you are perf- if you are hoping for a perpetual game service you need to have all, some base components for that um, are, and that is grossly the attribute of this like designer i guess jordan you might have a perspective here too but like you know if you're a founder today and you're thinking about finding like a founding designer like how would you what are some of like the bullets that you'd want to make sure that this person hits man i like so it's interesting because i like slim i believe that there are people in other functions that might have very strong feelings beliefs and even understandings about game design and i think it's totally reasonable that that be maybe the ceo who has those it may be some other co-founding engineer it could be a number of people as long as they have deep understanding and deep experience so i'll just start with that i think if they have a full vision maybe they're actually just a designer but they have a full vision maybe they don't need to have the same degree of um willingness to give on that vision. I think it's okay maybe for them to actually be very, very resolved and to try to hire people who are able to fit into their idea or scheme if maybe they're a tastemaker. That's possible, that's one version. I think that's a like rarer version, but actually I think Slim, when I worked with you guys, that's what I would describe you as with Valorant. Like you had a very clear vision to a degree, I think eventually when I was working with you about what Valorant would be. And I even asked Slim, I'm sorry if this is like too much, like what, what do they need to like? Can they like Halo? And you're like, hell no. Can they like Call of Duty? Absolutely not. Right. Like they need to I say to that like by the way, not as hopefully not as an elitist standpoint, but yeah. from a like those are very different experiences from yeah, a competitive pretty, standpoint. To make this game. Right. So Slim was able to tell me, and then that meant, right? I couldn't go find a game designer who felt like those were the types of games that they wanted to potentially work on or enjoyed or whatever. And so it, Brian, to to the question, it's like 
it depends on the type of game they're making and if they're clear. If they are clear, I think that you want to try and fit within the confines of what they're building because anything else is an impediment. If they are actually really trying to figure it out because, Slim, unfortunately, some people do start without a game director or someone who has all the product vision, say it's an engineering leader and maybe a producer sort of like combo as the founders and they need to find a designer to start. I think then they're, they need to find someone who's very flexible, who can work with them, who can help them lead down the road. So I think ultimately the characteristics, the behaviors, all the things that they need to find from a, a first designer or a number of people are really, um, they're a, a reaction to what else is there, how far along they are in their vision. And it's, it's, um, it's too reductive to think that there's a formula. Of course. Yeah. It's I always mean, about reacting. Yeah. 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 Epic riot, supercell, like the, the CEOs or, or the founding team weren't necessarily like designers, oh, yeah. but they found, the designers, yeah. right? they found the right people. I mean, even I think yeah. Blizzard started with mostly engineers. Like, I mean, th there's no such thing as like a explicit game designer in like the early nineties or late eighties. They were just, everyone was a game developer. We're kind of returning to that form today. There's a bunch of different tool sets that are useful at different phases of development. I think in general, we're always problem solving. So I think you really want to find people that you have confidence are critical thinkers, uh, problem solvers. How do they know that they are on the right path? How sure are they? Why are they sure? Um, uh, there's a amount of like faith and confidence you need to have to like take a step that are initially like more blind. And then eventually you need to be, you need to also have qualities of like reflection. Like is this person retroactively like aware and like parsing what happened versus like, we are charging down this path, come hell or high water, uh, basically some level of like stubbornness. You need a bit of stubbornness to like stick with a vision that people don't see initially but you have to be reflective and self-aware. Otherwise you cannot improve despite all the motions of play testing and everything. You're not learned. You will not be in a position to learn from those and to take actions that are more, uh, that will lead to more resonance. And so I think sort of those are some of the qualities you want to fish out regardless of the title, seniority, experience level, discipline. I mean, look at so many games are made by, look at again, so many of the games that have been popped off recently that, um, these qualities would not necessarily be um, uh, readable on LinkedIn. If you looked at only their experience, you could not tell that they were like really problem solving and really like um, uh, thoughtful through their process, but produced experiences like Valheim and Battlebit and um, uh, Among Us, like all these games that have popped off that were not from like these storied studios, like, but clearly like dance circles around a lot of us from AAA, AAA studios, like, uh, I think it's those practices and maybe the humility to do that, that is something to look for in either the very experienced person, which many people stop reflecting, over rely on their experience. And then newer people who are less aware of the problem space, like either of these can be vulnerable to not do any of these practices. Um, so it takes, it's, as you can imagine, it's pretty hard to fish that out. So in a standard interview where you're looking at someone for an hour, can you fish that out? I've interviewed a lot of people and I think it's really tough. I think there's a lot of easy eliminates, easier eliminates, but I couldn't get to that level of confidence in an hour. Um, and so should we look at our hiring practices uh, and changes, our interview process and changes there? Um, 
currently at our studio, we spend, we've been, we've been getting recent feedback that our process is longer and more involved than most, and we are losing candidates as a result. But we are very happy with the hires we have. We may have more false um, negatives in there, um, whether and not necessarily us like declining people. Some people just elect out of our process, like uh, before it's over, which is what led to some of the feedback. Um, but I so far think it continues to be worth it. It's something that we're monitoring that I don't think it's like an absolutely like we're right or there's like a right way here. But we do think more time investment has been worth it considering the prospect of us potentially working together for years. Like is a few more hours like really a, that much to ask? It could be if you're someone looking for a job and you're applying to 20 places and it's like, dude, this is like this one company is like, really involved and after all that it might not have worked out and then it would feel even worse so there's steep trade-offs the way we do it but if we if we just proceed with someone often a one hour impression we should not be that surprised when we're having like management tax later um and all that all i gotta respond to you like on several fronts one you are you are um in a very privileged position to have both the time to do this, yes, the yeah. resources, and uh, in addition, you have what some of the most respected game makers on your team, and so your ability to continue to attract and for people to continue process with you, despite putting a lot of impediments in front of them, is higher than basically anyone else in the market. So, I respect you a lot, and I think your ability to do this is unusual, very unusual. So the only thing I would remark to anyone who's watching the podcast is like, be mindful about replicating Slim's process because you don't have probably the same starting point. But I appreciate on, that. Yeah, in man, addition to that, yeah. okay. I, I also want to just say that, um, okay, there's the science, at least everything I've read on predicting performance states that beyond six hours, if you've used your six hours very effectively, you have probably reached the limit of your ability to predict their performance in the future. Now that's in the frame of a structured interview process. The alternative is you've worked with them or you have references that you can actually trust. The problem is references are typically not any references you can trust. And so basically you should throw them out. So it's either, you know, them from the past or you interview them for about six hours. If you have a very capable interviewing team, a very smart interviewing approach, a number of other things, or you start making some other trades like them staying in process, which I think for Slim's, even though you've gotten this feedback, I'm guessing you experienced less of the downside than right some other companies would or some other founders would. We just have, have less, um, <clears throat> less traffic, so we don't. <laughs> if we were like, if we were at Riot again <clears throat> altogether, we're doing like ten a day, and that rate, that word would get spread out, and for better and for worse. So some people would be like, "Oh, I have a better idea what to expect when I do engage." with this company and this experience um, and other people were like, that was so dumb. Like we, I, they made me do all, they jumped through all these hoops and at the end I didn't even get an offer. Like that will also spread. And so, um, and either of those are fair, but <clears throat> again, despite that cost, and of course I'm talking to an extreme here, um, any extreme can be just terrible, but I think more should go into understanding some of those qualities and you can do that in a short amount of time, but <laughs> Um, most people haven't developed their interview processes or questions to really reliably get to that. Certainly not for all candidates. So there's a lot of false positives and a lot of false negatives that we have to just contend with. But all of this is in trade-off to other pain in the future of like management tax and 
offboarding and layoffs and all kinds of stuff. Like, especially if you don't know your product, right? <laughs> well, that's like very the, hard the, the, coming back yeah. all the way back to that is like, yeah. if you don't have that driving North star, then you're hiring more generically. And if you're hiring more generically, we should not be more surprised when our results are more generic, right? <laughs> yeah. But if we go back to Brian, Brian made the point about uh, Pincus and not having a designer, but to be fair, I don't think they really hired the same types of designers almost, you know, sure. until far, far, far into the future of them being a company. Like they looked for more traditional product management, sure. KPI folks, statisticians, yeah, and mathematicians. Clearly they've and worked yeah, for them. It, it was commercially successful. It was very, very successful. But it, it's important to disambiguate, yeah. at least clarify that these are very different profiles that ended up being hired to match the sort of characteristics of the organization's yeah. types of products they were building. Yeah, I will absolutely. While I advocate for this um, because of my bias, I will also simultaneously not say that it's like certainly the only way or let alone the best way. So it, it's a way that has worked for our team that gives us confidence that we think gives our candidates confidence in us and our process, or at least they know what they're stepping into and can then elect to, elect into it or, or, or elect out of it. And we try to be as upfront about that early in our process as possible. Um, and then the cost of it is like, you know, um, people electing out. Like, yeah. Cool. I, I do want to, we did want to talk a bit about kind of AI and how that's kind of augmenting the ability for small teams to maybe like punch above their weight and do more and also obviously help like larger studios become more efficient. Um, so I'm just curious, like for, for both of you guys, like how are you starting to see like emergent technologies influence like how teams are built and how teams can operate? Yeah. And is it actually being used? Right. I think that's my biggest question is like, I think it's, it's great that it's going to be a great new tool that's going to help accelerate a lot of this development, but yeah, like love to see what you guys are actually seeing from like a talent perspective, people leveraging these tools and, and how it's working out. Um, the person I am <clears throat> closest to that has been um, doing a lot of experimentation of this is Travis Boatman at Carbonated. Um, I love it. His eyes like light up when he's like, oh, he's like showing me something, some new tool. And I'm like, I would say I put in about, I don't know, 10 to 15% effort. So not zero, but like not much. And then I stay close to some people who are putting in, I don't know what percentage he would say, but he's putting in more. And um, he's looking for opportunities to apply it to his problem set. Um and so I think we're in like a state obvious. We're in very early stages. The tools are just starting to come online and have some amount of promising application. Uh, we can only conjecture, like project where it could go. There's a lot of things we can't even really meaningfully predict. Um, so it, it does seem out of the recent, out of the trends of the past 10 years that have come and gone, this one has a lot more legs to be relevant and applicable, but also we have we we at Raidbase have this feeling that it's just like, it's just starting. There's nothing we are currently doing that absolutely relies on it. Nor do we want to create a dependency on something that is new that may or may not come to fruition at the time that we need it. So we are just more conservative on that front, uh, and thankfully that our problem set doesn't seem to be like so reliant on it. But we are also I th I'd like to think very open minded to it. So if something comes out that is promising uh, based on outcomes that happen, not just like hopes and dreams. And then it's, it has been repeated by a number of other students. Basically it's a little bit beat, uh, um, a little bit, um, uh, has a little bit of rigor. Um, we will then consider it like, uh, 
uh, to be more reliable and, and and more eager to use it. So I think we're very open-minded to it, looking forward to it. I don't know when and where these will be ready. So I'm currently not relying on it, but I do think there's a lot of promise to it. And, um, and some people are immediately actioning on it right now and, and let alone like the whole category of topic that I don't think we're touching here, which is like what new game experiences are going to result out of this like technological advancement, which happens from time to time from graphical updates to tool set updates that have unlocked a lot of things. Like I, I'm not a particularly creative person, so I like, I don't consider myself a particularly creative person, so I, I can't even like imagine where that will go, but I'll be happy when it happens and I'll be happy to use any of it for what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, because I feel like generative AI, there's like one field of work that is going to, you know, persist and be protected. It's probably creative work, right? I mean, it's really tough for general AI to like create full-on creative experiences. And you think about using that as more of a tool versus like a catch-all solution that's going to replace game designers or artists. Like, I I just personally think that's a really tough world to see. but I guess, yeah, like, wh- what are you guys kind of seeing as really so like that specific part? Like, you know, people, I think that's one of the fears, right? That you're seeing a lot of backlash with AI is like, oh man, like it's going to replace a bunch of jobs and, you know, people are not going to be able to like work in the industry anymore. But that also feels very far-fetched to me. But yeah, like what's your guys' take is really I, that I definitely think, trigger. yeah, I think it, it certainly affects, I'm just going to talk about my own personal and not even recruiting experience for half a second. There are, Things that I now do at work that I would have never done before, whether it's generating some asset that I'm going to use online for marketing. And in effect, it's changed how I now do my work effectively, which might also mean that other people need to respond to me in the same way. And it it creates a, a new standard for some roles, I think, to start leveraging the technology to broaden their impact, where in the past, I might have had to go to a graphic designer. There might not have been one at the company. And so it doesn't really matter. Now I can just do stuff. So I think it's fair to say many people across many different functions are likely to be affected because they will become less competitive in their roles if they aren't starting to expand their leverage and using technology to their advantage, whether it's automating spreadsheets or finding ways to more quickly you know, collate survey data or producing a report you know, out of thin air, doing like a chat GPT. These are all like basically um, uh, skips on your day to day. I think they can save you hours on something that would have been very difficult in the past, specifically for game development. There are certainly teams that we have who feel less of a need to get a concept artist right away because they feel like they can do rapid concepting and it's reasonable enough. They don't really need to have high fidelity at this point. They just need to have some breadth. And so they can do that. They can do it potentially in, 3D as well, which is, you know, pretty scary, I think, to a degree to a lot of artists. And I think it's reasonable for the artist to have a degree of fear. Now, from my personal perspective, there's two two sort of um, paths here. One is that we produce the same amount of output, but it's more efficient and therefore jobs are affected, right? That's the, the first version. The second version is we think the increased efficiency that we have actually expands our output, that we make more art or that we make more products, but with the same number of people. So I think it's very possible that plenty of those artists learn how to use these tools and work more with the tools. And it, it brings greater velocity to their work because even if, you know, a 
non-artists can interact with mid-journey or something else they don't have the lexicon necessarily they don't have the stylistic understanding they don't have all the reference points they cannot be i don't think as effective as an artist even using the tools and so it makes sense to me that many of the people in those types of functions will eventually be able to be the operators of the tools in a more effective way than some person who wasn't trained in the actual craft of art or of narrative or of whatever other potential sort of role is that's being discussed. I think there are other job functions, like maybe being a uh, lawyer who needs to do research. Like it seems to me more likely that those are affected territories or they have a big impact on pay than is the case in our world in, in gaming where effectively there's um, a non-zero sum amount of content that we can probably generate and potentially market that we can generate where there is a zero sum in some other functions, I think to a degree. So I think it means that people have to be reactive, change, grow, leverage the technologies. Maybe some people won't like the work that comes from that. You know, maybe they liked drawing and they don't like sort of putting in a bunch of prompts and, you know, modifying, but it seems to me that it is unlikely to fully destroy the job market for these categories of functions that are critically important for the games that we like to play and make. Yeah, there's so many qualities <clears throat> to look for in any candidate in any discipline. Um, Skill set is one. Um, and you can imagine just generically, let, let's use art since we were talking about it as an example, where when an artist is first starting out, a lot of art is natural to learn by mimicking. And so you look at certain artists that inspire you, you start to mimic their style. Eventually you get confidence, you start branching out to your own and developing your own taste and style where you're influenced by things along the way and you start deviating. And that's like a, a typical natural progression. Um, and so maybe not by accident, maybe this feeds into how some of the AI is being developed. We're seeing current AI tech like mimicking um, certain art skills but i think you can quickly generate all this art somebody maybe for some people they'll even rely on ai to do this but judgment is another vector who judges out of this pile of like 100 pieces of art that we just generated like this is the one we're going to run with instead right. of this one and why and how is it connected to the other things not to say that couldn't be also eventually mimicked or simulated and but but there will be probably a huge range of tolerance um, or thresholds for people who are more inclined or less inclined to rely on that. So you think about like the stakes of what you're doing. Is there a day where there is a government that will rely on an AI to um, to to have their its, its finger on the nuke? Like you can take, take it all the way to that. And for some people, you know, not to be as that dramatic, but like for a game, are you how reliant are you wanting to be on that? I'm sure there's some where like, I don't know anyway, and my judgment is not any better. So I'm just going to like let the robot handle it. There's going to be inevitably some studios that want to lean more into that. And then some are like, this is the whole thing of what I do. Like, I am the judge. I am confident. I did spend a lifetime feeding my algorithm of like playing thousands of hours of Counter-Strike. Like I stick it to my parents and I'm like, see, it was all worth it. <laughs> but, but like, that's why I, I rely on my judgment in some spaces, but not in all spaces. And so it really depends, I think, what we're doing, where we came from to, to I think, influence to what degree is this adopted? So even if the tech is available, I still might not choose to adopt it um, in many cases because it's something that we think we are stronger at or something like that. So maybe yeah. it's like a complementary tool to wherever you aren't that you might be more open to it maybe, but yeah. 
I mean, so much of game <clears throat> development or any kind of creative work is like you need a lot of soul and taste and things. I think that are really at least tough we think so. Some people don't. Some people are like stick it into the robot and the robot spits out an answer and it works for a while and a lot of money gets made and it's fine too. It also works. Right. But we all have our different style. Like some people, not everyone goes to make a game for the same purpose. And so therefore we'll have different problem sets and have different tools at their disposal and their inclinations to leverage any of these things. So we're going to continue to see variety and maybe with all these, maybe even again, if you consider this currently and maybe one day it's beyond this, but currently as like a, the overall tool set that should theoretically and so far has been expanding the scope of attempts and viability for different teams to attend. So, so the proportions might like shift over time, but overall, if it expands, there should hopefully always persist some area of games that aren't using it and that won't take away everyone's opportunity. Yeah. I mean, it also goes to say like, is AI used as like an efficiency tool where it's like there is an outcome and whether that outcome is like fully manual or fully AI or something hybrid versus I think both uh, Brian and you Steven mentioned, there's also just gonna be like emergent gameplay and emergent experiences that just couldn't exist before without AI. And I think those are the things that, again, that's less about dev tools and less about middleware and, and making people more efficient and more about like what type of interactions can exist now that couldn't exist otherwise. And I think that's something where like that will create like new markets and there's gonna be new developers that are trying to experiment with the technology in that way. And, and I think that will also impact kind of like what teams form, how big do teams need to be? What, what is the right kind of core team look like to build that kind of experience? Like that's all going to be very different than what it took to make like a, a, a traditional game that wasn't using that. Yeah. I think it's actually like the solo devs that get the most benefit too, right? You think about on steam, there's a lot of these like incredible games that's made by one or two developers and, like they're probably limited in terms of like resources and the output, right? So in theory, I feel like that's like where you're going to see a lot of leverage. It's like the, like and, to the point, like they have the most complementary need. Yeah. So right. they can accelerate that. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or even like even we, more. we talked about earlier with like <laughs> Roblox and like some of these games that like today may not from like a, like, let's just say from like a graphic perspective may not be like on par with like a AAA studio. Like, you know, what's the stop a platform in the future? Maybe it's Roblox. They're going to do it themselves, but what was to stop kind of helping close that gap for those like single developers or solo developers that's going to go build these things, right? I think it's also maybe reasonable to believe that the largest developers take the uh, potential efficiency gains as margin, but effectively that might shift the resourcing, the people, the, the humans into smaller or more nascent studios. So that's a double win, Brian, from my perspective. It's yeah. not only that the solo developers get greater degree of functionality, but they also potentially get more access to talent. Cool. I guess any other um, thoughts or topics you guys want to comment on this time? I know we've already gone on for about 70 minutes. Let me think here. We've already, the main message I wanted to hopefully encourage people was like, not to just, I don't know, um, to, to be thoughtful as they like leap into the void. There's already like so many things to take a leap on as we develop the early steps of making a game. 
but we talked a bit about you know exacerbating that with also leaping on recruiting and hiring yeah. and let me I, actually, trust I, I have one question based on a follow-up um you mentioned uh, and jordan when you guys were working together on valorant team <clears throat> slim had a very specific view on like halo call of duty like specific games as like what re- what experience is relevant or like what type of experience do you want someone to have in order to fit the core mold of like what you guys are building how important is it for a new founder to have clarity like to what degree of clarity should they have around either audiences that they're going after or the type of game that they want to build especially as a race relates to hiring the early early team i'm either the right guy or the wrong guy to ask but I, that's like the most <laughs> paramount thing like i said don't even, don't even freaking dare to start like without clarity on that because then what are you basing every other action on it's just more random so not to say success couldn't be had but i'll have a tough time believing it wasn't super random like that you got there um and of course it's not like the way i'm encouraging is like a for sure thing too it's like in my eyes like just um a step towards a higher hit rate of outcome and a narrowing of like just more things out of your control um over time and and like again I, i've rarely been like so sure about anything like when i say um having more confidence like i want to get more than halfway <laughs> like 60 percent sure i'll take that as to take a few steps and then from there maybe i'm now 70 percent sure or 80 percent sure. we're like accumulating that confidence um and hopefully uh, if you can afford to doing that before taking asking others to take that leap of faith yeah. otherwise it's like i have a shaky foundation i'm asking you to join my fake foundation now we have like Compounds, double the complexity the yeah, yeah. You know, it's like it i see that way too much um than, than than i would like that then leads to the scenarios where you're like how are you like surprised that this outcome was freaking random um so uh i think it's paramount to draw on something i lean a lot on empathy with a particular audience. I do not ever profess to empathize with all audiences. I actually think I have a pretty narrow band um, within multiplayer experiences. Like categorically, I I don't even understand 1v1 games. Like I don't profess to like anything in that category. Like I played six years of Warcraft 3, but 2v2. I can't even say anything about 1v1 RTSs. Um, Fighting games uh card games i don't even i just shut up like this i don't know anything about those spaces but i've spent a lot of time thinking about squad or group dynamic type games and 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 regardless of genre labels so my brain spiders out to that so wherever you can draw from it doesn't have to only be you but of course if you're pushing this it's 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 a good starting point um and then there's a matter of like okay so we have like a general direction but then how do we get this shit to actually work and Again, that that's where you want someone who's practiced that, like connecting those dots, dealing with those variables, getting them to all like play together. That is like someone's lifetime of practice. Um, and so I think that is like also paramount because it's like a next step. Um, and then even if you do that reasonably well, when I say reasonable, I mean like we're in a ballpark. We're not like at a pinpoint. <laughs> we're like somewhere over here. But without that definition, then how do you even know for any given topic if it's inside this and aligned, roughly aligned, or sounds good in a vacuum, but is is like entirely opposed to the momentum we already been building? Most people don't do this work, so they proceed day by day, just zigzagging, just like getting yanked like from one side to the other, and that is very very fatiguing. 
So on top of then the challenge of like problem solving this, you're dealing with a team that is increasing in fatigue and has lower and lower patients. So eventually someone just gives up and is like, fine, let's just do it that way. And then that decision right there to me is extremely arbitrary. Um, it's just somebody tilted, somebody yielded, somebody pushed harder, somebody yelled louder. And then that's how that we ended up with this. And now we're asking a team of three pods and 50 people like to like go along with this. If you trace the route, like ultimately some arbitrary decision, like again, you do this three times a day, 20 times a week, hundred times, hundred times a month. Like it's just, you get to really random outcomes. Yeah. I would, I'll only say that (laughs) I believe that, um, people are all very different and what works for teams is very different. What made me, I think, effective as a recruiter was understanding the unique nature of the people or the groups of people that I was interacting with and trying to complement those teams. Some teams need executors. Some teams need stabilizers. Some teams need someone who will come in and like be a a catalyst. Some teams... Teams need very different things and at different times. So it's difficult for me to answer this question other than to say you need to, I think Slim's right in saying you need to be self-aware, know what you have or don't try to like itemize or inventory what you're trying to accomplish. Or if if you don't know, being able to say, I I don't know, and this is what I need to fill in and trying to figure out the next headcount or the next person who will bring some of those skills or yeah. right be a good match for you and your team's personality. Yeah. I think that's fair. Like there, there's of course no one size fits all, but it's about every situation is unique and you want to build that right core that can kind of like cohesively mesh together and all march in that same kind of North star direction. Yeah. Even what you just said there, Jason, as a nice summary <clears throat> that I super agree with, like you just said, of course, no one size fits all. I don't believe that the majority of developers that I've encountered, particularly among the experience set, actually takes that as a given. They, if you actually look at their behaviors, in a conversation, they might all nod their heads, but it, when you look at their actual behaviors and decisions, they don't actually operate under that perspective or under that paradigm. And again, uh, maybe to the spirit of what, what we're saying here, like what I'm not advocating for is that this is like the only way or right way. But if you're going to do it your other way, you need to like... Uh, to Jordan's point, be aware of the trade-offs in yeah. your way and then complement as such. Yeah. Yeah. I think one last topic I wanted to chat with you guys about was comp and structuring it in this new world, right? Where burn <clears throat> is just like a super sensitive topic. Um, I think at least from like our perspective as early stage investors, like we also like founders that are trying to hire people that are not centered around like super high salary or like a very comfortable lifestyle. Right. And in our opinion, there should be like a bigger option pool and, I think that's a great thing about equities is it aligns incentives. So like when you win and if you're more generous as a founder with equity to your employees, like you can all win together and there's more incentive for people to stick around and see that best. But I guess from like your guys' perspective, like how do you think about um, comp in this world? And like, you know, what are some of the, what are some of the things that you, know, you think about as, as it relates to hiring people and how that impacts like the type of people you hire all the way to, retention and I guess even from like um, cost coming perspective, like, yeah, how does this all factor in? This is also a huge, another hugely um, complicated topic and charge With topic. three minutes, yeah. Yeah, I was like, um, uh, so many things flying through my head. Okay, so, um, okay, so on, on, on comp at a startup, 
um, typically there will be, of course, base, base pay and then some amount of equity and some promise of future bonus um, currently. No immediate cash bonuses. There shouldn't be immediate cash bonuses typically. Yeah, it, it, it's, 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 well, well, like, it's basically pretty arbitrary if anyone does that. It's like, what would it be based off of? Um, but um, okay, so with equity, um, there's still, I think, a large, I would even go so far as say a majority as in more than half of developers that I've encountered do not actually understand equity. So they don't value it or appreciate it, even if we as founders do because, or investors do because we're in this world. And, and I don't blame most developers, even if they understand it, for not appreciating it because there aren't that many examples, as many examples historically, where equity has meaningfully impacted their finances as bonuses did. So there's more people who are appreciative of bonuses that they can understand a little bit better. And it's, it's all a matter of treatment too. There are bonus systems where it's like a black box and they have no idea how they got, what number they got, or they draw conclusions because they don't understand that like, oh, someone was just around 10 years longer than me. And that's why they drive a McLaren into the parking lot and I don't, and I'm struggling to pay my rent in Irvine. Like that is an actual real thing that many of my fellow developers struggled with for a long time. And like, um, and so it's all over the place. Um, I guess at the end of the day, you sh we should all take steps as founders or in the recruiting process to help people understand that and educate them, even if it may be detrimental to our own hiring. I, I go to that extent. I'm like, sometimes I explain it to the point where I'm almost talking them out of joining a startup or um, staying where they're at. And, and it hurts to do that, but I'd rather have that conversation now than a year later where you're like, where's my bonus? How come I didn't get a raise? How come I didn't get the 20% raise that I'm getting every year, right? Like, <laughs> um, there are some people, I remember those eras where people are like, I only got a 15% raise this year. Ugh. And you're like, dude, I worked at EA for like five years before I got a 10% raise. What point are we on? 270% bonus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're like, what well, in the I'll, world? Yeah. I want to give you like the, the sort of short version. Yeah. I think a lot of time founders, managers, they think they need to have a certain person, a certain talent. And to Slim's point, like some of them, evaluate that form of compensation equity as uh, you know something they cannot accept. I think the reality is the founder or the team needs to redesign their plan and figure out how to find the person who has the appropriate motivation not to try and compete for every piece of talent on the market that they think is the right talent. Because ultimately, you don't have the same resources as these other companies. You cannot go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, period. If you can in the near term, you won't in the long term yeah. because those people will have higher pay. They will continue to get bombarded by recruiters. It's just like, it's just going to keep going. So ultimately, if you find the appropriate motivation, number one, and you can convince them, meaning you show them functional capability, product clarity, whatever they need to believe in you as a leader, your company, and your vision, then their acceptance of equity is much, much easier. Now, I agree with Slim that less of, less people have won on equity in our space, but plenty have, right? Thousands of developers from Riot and many from Scopely and Zynga and blah, blah, blah. So I would at least try to b believe that you'll eventually find the right person and be willing to let go the wrong one who really is stuck on having guaranteed comp and otherwise they're not going to make it so wrong for you in that situation. Not necessarily wrong because everyone has their own motivation for why they need cash comp today versus have the ability to have like equity comp later. But I think having that alignment yeah, mortgage or whatever. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. There's another thing that I want to say that hopefully isn't too spicy, but in general, if someone is giving you abnormally high comp, I think 
that you need to be careful that they're buying something um, because trust that people don't pay when they don't have to. And so if they are going out of their way, what most people read is, oh, they finally, finally someone appreciates me. And that might be true. That might be like a big component. It's like an, it's a nice uh, thing, something that feels good. That's an ego boosting thing. But in, again, in reality, part of what they might be paying for is um, your name, your credibility, uh, uh, a press release in some cases. Um, it, and, and in other cases, they want you to put up with something. Um, there's some deficiency they haven't been successful in hiring for. And so they start pumping up the number until they find someone who will bite. And that means you should be as aware as possible what you're walking into to get this pay that like, it's basically hazard pay. Like what, why are they paying this much for this thing? Um, and then let's see what else. Um, I'm more nervous. They just mismanage their finances yeah. in that, in that ca case. Yeah. Sometimes math is hard. Yeah. It's, it's big numbers are, yeah. Well, I, yeah, that all of, I was trying to find a nice way of saying like the bigger companies have to pay more because there are some frustrating challenges at each of yeah. these that they have to, to, to compete. And, you can take the higher pay and you should not to say anyone shouldn't complain, but you should be aware that you're stepping into that and you need to eat that and, and trade for that pay. So there's trade-offs any which way you go that you should try to think through. And it's not for free to get the highest pay offer in many cases. Cool. Any last word, Jordan? Otherwise really, really appreciate you guys like hopping on and it was a really fun conversation and yeah, I mean, I hope we can do it again sometime soon. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much for having us. Thank you, us. guys. It was great.